In Luke 15, a few weeks ago, we learned about Jesus' parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And today we're in Luke chapter 16, and we'll see Jesus tell us two more parables about two rich men. Verse 1 says there was a rich man, and then verse 19 says there was a rich man. So Jesus is telling us two parables about rich men. The Bible tells us about many important themes in our lives, many important uh, topics. It talks about our personal relationships, our work, our pleasures, our eternal destinies. And this passage tells us and addresses an important matter that affects every one of our lives, and that is with our money. So it's, Jesus is using two parables with some teaching in between these two parables to tell us about money, about what it is, why it matters, and how we should think about it as those who follow him. Let me read Luke chapter 16. For now, I'll read just down through verse 13. We will study this entire chapter together this morning, but I'll read now Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Whichever version of the Bible you have will be just fine as you follow along silently. Let me read verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. When you think about the future, how far down the road do you allow your mind to go? Surely you've thought about what you're going to do the rest of today, what what is on the calendar for this coming week. Maybe even you're making specific plans for the holidays. Maybe you have next year mapped out. Maybe you have a particular date on your calendar of when you're going to retire, so you're moving toward that date. When you think about the future, what exactly are you considering? What exactly are you wondering about? What are you planning for? This passage tells us about a man who thought about his future and made a wise decision in light of what he knew was going to come, in light of the hard time that he knew was going to come. I read about a man this past week who was in Texas. He died recently, I believe this summer. Before he died, he asked his family, he had just two wishes. One was that they would bury him rather than cremate him. And then secondly, that they would bury him as close as possible 
to his parents who had died decades before. That's a fine request, somewhat of a normal request, I would assume. I don't think there's anything wrong with those requests by any means. I appreciate that man thinking about his future to the point of where am I going to be buried? Where is my body going to lie at rest? But I do want to ask, did that man think beyond the grave? If you're making preparations for where your body is going to lay to the end of time, should you not think, where am I going to be after I die? Should your mind not go a little bit further, a little bit further down the road? How often do you think about your own death, about your own eternal destiny more specifically, about where you're going to spend eternity? Once again, this passage tells us about a man who thought of his future with regard to his money, and he made a wise decision. What this passage is laying out for us, all the way to the very end of of this chapter, down from verse 1 through verse 31, is that followers of Jesus have a fundamentally different view of money than the world does. Followers of Jesus have a fundamentally different view of money. We think about money, or I should say we should think about money, very differently than a non-Christian thinks about money. Just like I hope that that man who died in, in Texas thought about not just where his body was going to be, but where his soul was going to be, we too need to make plans for the future. And specifically, how we're going to see our money bear good fruit in the future. That's what these parables are about. And it's unusual for us to talk about money, just because you know not every passage of the Bible deals with this. But clearly, that's what this passage is talking about. So I hope that it will help all of us to think faithfully about our money, to think rightly and biblically about our money, so that we as followers of Jesus, assuming that's most of us who are here, will then think about our money in a way that is right and biblical. But in this passage, Jesus gives us three cautions about money. And the first is here in verses 1 through 13, and that is don't use your money for short-sighted purposes. Don't use your money for short-sighted purposes. The alternative is that we would rather use it to invest in what will last forever. And that's what we read about in this, this unusual parable, this man who uh, is hired by a very wealthy man. So verse 1 says that there was a rich man who had a manager. This passage that we're reading about is mostly about that manager, kind of the middleman, we might say. So it sounds like this rich man probably has, let's say he, has, he owns 100 fields. That would be humongous, right? Well, There's no way he can take care of those all himself. So he hires a manager who then oversees all the people who are out there working in those fields. And this manager, he finds out somebody that, you know, is unnamed, comes to him and says, hey, just so you know, your manager's cheating you out of a lot. Doesn't tell us how he did it. Was he embezzling funds? Was he uh, doing some other underhanded practice? Or was he just simply not being careful? And maybe he just wasn't a good manager in the first place. Kind of like Tony LaRusso. Oh, I should not have said that. Uh, But nonetheless, he was wasting this rich man's possessions. Wasting his possessions. How is he doing that? Again, don't exactly know. But here he dials in a little bit, and and the the rich man calls in the manager and says, look, I want to hear what's going on. I'm hearing these stories. They're not flattering. So why don't you just lay it all out for me and tell me what's going on? Where's my money going to? We actually don't hear how the manager responds to his boss, the rich man, but we do know his thoughts, which is a little unusual uh, for him, for us to know what he said to himself. Of course, this is just a parable that Jesus uh, created, not not a a true story, but uh, 
a useful story for us for sure. What shall I do since my manager is taking the management away from me? All right, I'm getting fired. So basically, you can kind of picture in a corporate environment, he's just walked out of the boss's office, and he puts his hands up in his hair and goes, oh no, what am I going to do now? There's no way I want to go and be, you know, let's say he's the second in charge at AT AT&T, and he's used to having a nice corner office, and now he's going to go out and he's going to be digging holes in the ground for AT&T's cable wires or whatever else. Who really wants to go from that white-collar environment where you're used to sitting in the air conditioning with a suit on to going and digging out in the dirt regardless of what the weather is? No one wants to do that. So he starts thinking to himself, look, I'm not strong enough to dig. There's no way I could do that. But I also don't want to become a beggar. That sounds worse to me. So verse 4 is where he kind of has his aha moment. It's almost as if he goes, aha, I've thought of what to do. That's what's called an aha moment. So I have decided what to do in verse 4. So that when I'm removed from management, he's just spelling it out for us. So when I am, you know, when I have my last day, people may receive me into their houses. In other words, I'll have a place to live. All right, let's just back up for a second. He's seeing the future. He's seeing there's this, this hard time coming. And he's not sure what to do about it. But he also knows if he does nothing about it, it's not going to make the future any easier. Right? This is common sense. So there's got to be something I can do Oh, here, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get friends who feel like they are indebted to me. Like they have to give me something so that I can then survive. So that's what he does here in verse 5. Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? Come on, man. Do you really think that, maybe we should just ask ourselves, do we really think that this guy didn't know how much they owed? Of course he knew how much they owed. He's asking them, so that they kind of have to think about it a little bit and kind of have to process it, and then they'll realize just how much of a favor this guy is doing for them. So, how much do you owe my master? And this first person says, a hundred measures of oil. And perhaps your translation translates it into more common measurements in our society. All we can say about, um, all we need to say about the amount of wheat and the amount of oil this is talking about is we're talking in spans of years how much it would take to pay back these debts. These are humongous debts. Like this would be, you work every day for three years in order to pay back this debt. And in the meantime, you're not you know, paying any other debts that you might have. How these people got into this kind of debt, who knows? Stranger things have happened, I suppose. So one says, I owe 100 measures of, of oil. He says, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. That quickly part makes you think, this is a little shady here. <laughs> like, come on, you've got to get this over in a hurry here before my boss comes and finds out what we're doing. So he writes, okay, now I only owe half of what I used to owe. Verse 7, he says to another, he walks to his next field that he supervises. And how much do you owe, my master? I owe 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. We actually don't know what exactly he's doing. Again, this is an unusual story. Many commentators have said this is the hardest of Jesus' parables. So please pray for me as I, as I preach through this. This, is, this one does kick you in the teeth a little bit. This passage does. At least it did me. So what is he doing here? There's a couple options. One is to go from that 100 down to 50. Maybe he's taking the interest off that this rich man had put on each of his um, you know, benefactors, I suppose. Maybe that's it. Maybe this, this manager is cutting out his own commission, saying, you know what, I'm going to 
take a loss right now so that these people appreciate me later and give me a place to live? There are other options, other um, possibilities that people throw around about what exactly he's doing here. But verse 8 tells us what he's doing. It tells us you know, what, what the, the basic idea is. He's being shrewd, verse 8 says. He's being wise. Maybe he's manipulating the situation a little bit, but Jesus isn't saying that, that the master commended his dishonesty. He's commending his shrewdness. He's commending the fact that he thought about the future, saw there was a bad day coming, and worked at it right now. Right? He did something now to affect the future because he realized the future is more important than the present moment. We often don't think that way very well. This is what you know, a sports team does when they trade away their best player to get five draft picks down the road. They're realizing we need something that's going to help us in 2025, not just 2022. And so essentially what this man is doing is saying, I'm going to be unconcerned with what it feels like right now. I'll take the pinch right now as long as I know someone's going to want to take care of me later on. So verse 8 says, the master, the rich man, back in verse 1, commended the dishonest manager, this, this manager who's described throughout these eight verses, for his shrewdness. So I think that's kind of the end of the parable, and now Jesus kind of comments on that. I think this is Jesus' statement of what's going on behind the scenes here. The sons of this world, that would be unbelievers, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That would be Christians, believers, those who seek to follow God. This is not exactly a compliment. This is kind of a biting criticism that often non-believers are wiser, more shrewd with their money than, than Christians are. Perhaps you can think of examples of that in your own experience. So what does Jesus tell you to do? What's the point of this parable? Verse 9 tells us that. It's still a hard verse. It's still a hard sentence for us to get our idea our idea for us to get our minds around but jesus here does tell us why he said this story i tell you make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings what in the world is that supposed to mean here's the basic idea use your money your time your possessions now in a way that will benefit you in the future. Use your money now. Invest your money now in a way that will benefit you in the future. Use your money to invest in what will last forever, in other words. Use your money in a way that will... uh, Invest it in a way that will last forever. Where do we get this from verse 9? Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So the first thing we need to work through there is what is unrighteous wealth? It does not mean that money is inherently evil. Money is a natural part of society. Jesus never wholeheartedly condemns money. He uses the inappropriate, condemns the inappropriate use of it. But he doesn't say money itself is evil. So this unrighteous wealth just simply means that it's temporal. It's in this world. Sometimes, in the, I think in the King James, it says filthy lucre at different points in the Bible. It's kind of this sense that the money itself is just kind of tainted by the fact that it's all going to evaporate at some point. It's temporary. It's not eternal. That's the idea behind it being uh, unrighteous wealth as opposed to what lasts forever. It's talking about something very temporal. 
So that when it fails, when what fails? The unrighteous wealth. In other words, when your money's all gone, well, what's going to happen then? They may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Eternal dwellings is eternal life, okay? But who's the they? Well, again, we're talking about a parable here and Jesus' application of it. It seems to be God is saying, or Jesus is saying, that God will receive you into heaven. In other words, you are using your temporal, your unrighteous wealth, your temporary resources for what's going to last forever, the eternal dwellings, so that God will take you into heaven, not on the basis of how you used your money, right? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we are saved because of the way we use our money or the way we don't use our money, but that we are making an investment in the future. I tell you, I read as many books as I've read about this passage compared to any other sermon. I mean, probably some weeks I don't even have to look at some commentaries because it's just kind of like laying out there. It's kind of easy. It's kind of a little more accessible. This one really was work, and I was actually pretty surprised that pretty much every commentator, every theologian, every other pastor I kind of checked on their, on their sermons, how would they approach this, basically agreed. This is just saying, invest in what lasts forever. Okay, I probably, now I'm not Jesus, so I don't have eternal wisdom. I probably would have used a different way of explaining it. This was really hard. But what Jesus is saying is, don't use your money for short-sighted purposes. In other words, what would it have looked like for this dishonest manager to use his money for short-sighted purposes? All right, I'm going to go and be dishonest some more and go live it up now. What does that make you think of? How about... Luke 15, the guy who took his inheritance and ran with it and then regretted it and had to crawl back home saying, I'm sorry, I've wasted everything I had. That would have been using your money for short-term purposes. Instead, he used his money for long-term purposes. He said, these people are going to have to let me live with them because I just saved them three years of work to pay off. Does that make sense? He's just trying to ingratiate people, make them wish, uh, make them feel like there is no other way but to help them the rest of their lives. That's an unusual tactic, but it's what he does here. So Jesus adds some, some words of instruction here, and then we'll, we'll make some applications here in just a second that maybe will help us explain what this looks like in our own lives. But here in verses 10 through 13, Jesus kind of uh, principalizes what he's just told in this parable. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So maybe you think, well, I don't have to worry about being faithful because I have so little money in my account. I mean, I, if I even have a bank account. And I've, I've met people who don't. So, you know, it's not that unusual, I suppose. No, what Jesus is saying is, if you only have a little, you be faithful with a little. If you only have one child, be faithful with one child. It's not that, well, I'll be faithful once I have three kids or once I have seven kids. Be faithful with what God gives you. Be faithful with the small job. And you, maybe we worked up the chain a little bit as a result of that. But either way, the Lord is honored by our faithfulness in even the little things in life. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, with the money that will go away, okay? Again, let's just use it that way. With worldly, temporary money. If you've been unfaithful with money that's going to disappear when you die, who's going to entrust to you the true riches? Eternal riches. The treasure in heaven that... Chapter 12 told us to lay up for ourselves. 
If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And then verse 13 kind of summarizes this whole story of using this word of servant again, kind of this, this idea of this um, manager. In a sense, he's a servant. No servant can to serve two masters. This is not complicated. This is, you're given a job. You can fly from Chicago to Dallas today, or you can fly from Chicago to Vancouver today. You can only do one or the other. Take your pick. You can't ride two horses in different directions. You can't do all kinds of things at the same time. You have to pick which one you're going to do. And by definition, if you're trying to accumulate for yourselves as much wealth as possible in this life, for this life, by definition, you are then not loving God. You're loving yourself. You're, you're loving money. That's what Jesus is saying here. You've got to choose which, you're, which one you're going to pursue. And what he's saying is, this manager, as rascally and kind of squirrely as he seems to be in some of this, he at least understood there's a day coming, a judgment day coming, when I'm going to have to have, I'm going to have to give an account. And I've got to save up for that day. So, what does that look like for us to use our money in a way that will last forever? To use our talents, our possessions, our lives in a way that will last forever. Let me read to you a letter that I got in the mail yesterday. Let's see where I put this here. I was encouraged by the timing. I thought, thanks for sending this just before my sermon. So this is from uh, the Charles Simeon Trust. We send money to this organization, which is located downtown. Every month they have the Chicago course on preaching. Remember Dave Cartwright was part of that. And so essentially this was just a thank you note to our congregation uh, on behalf of the Charles Simeon Trust, the Chicago Course on Preaching. Thanks in part to the, to the support of Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church, we had our biggest year ever. Between workshops, online courses, and the Chicago Course, which is the part we specifically support, there were 10,587 registrations. And these are all over the world. Dave Cartwright himself led a workshop via Zoom in Russia, okay, in the middle of a war back in March or April. We know God's word doesn't return void. Imagine what he might do through so many proclaiming the gospel of Jesus from the word. I love that note. To me, that sounds like we just took, I think it's $50 a month, and we threw it out in the air, and now gospel seeds have been watered all over the earth. And there are people who are learning how to preach the word better so that congregations can be healthy, so that they can know how to help each other, disciple one another, and grow together, and evangelize their neighborhoods. All right? Again, we could have taken those $600 and used it on any number of other programs or uh, opportunities. But this to me says, let's keep throwing our gospel seeds in the ground and letting God water them all over the earth. And to me, that is using our money, investing our money as a congregation in a way that will last forever. Who knows how many people are hearing someone who took the Chicago course today who will be saved because of the faithful preaching of the Word of God in that congregation who will live in eternity in heaven because we gave 50 stinking dollars a month so that they can hear the Word of God better. That is wonderful to me. And we could multiply this story after story after story of how we use our, our money in missions and in other ways. And that kind of leads me to this next application. Just 
with the fact that we have a church budget. I'm sure just about every church has a budget. The Bible doesn't say you have to have one, but it is kind of part of this wise stewardship. So what's in our church budget? What's going to be in our church budget for 2023? Basically the same thing as in 2022. That being said, what goes in a budget tells you what we prioritize, tells you what's important to us as a congregation. Not just to us as elders, but truly what we think is going to be good for us as a congregation to invest in. So what goes in the budget says what we prioritize. What that means is we would ask you to pray about the way that we allocate our funds. Is this the most faithful way? The Lord's given us a wonderful resource in this building. We should take care of this building. The Lord's given us resources of staff. We should take care of staff. The Lord's given us resources of missionaries. We should take care of missionaries. And we could go on and on in those three categories, just to cut through the chaff a little bit, is where most of our budget goes every single year, not just in what we're planning for 2023. But what that means is you want to help support that. You want to get behind the budget of your local church. If this isn't your local church, give to the budget of your local church and prioritize that. Regular giving to your local church helps invest in what will last forever rather than in short-sighted means like the prodigal son just a chapter ago. Perhaps what it looks like to give so that you'll have fruit down the road, so that you will have an eternal reward, an eternal inheritance, treasures in heaven, is through the means of hospitality. Opening up your home on a regular or even semi-regular or even occasional basis to allow other people to have gospel conversations with you. And if it's a non-Christian, maybe that's the only time they'll have a non-Christian conversation with you. If it's a Christian, maybe they are in particular need. And when they come into your warm home on a cold fall night and have a bowl of soup that costs you hardly anything to make, and they hear the ruckus of your kids playing, and they see that you actually live in that house, that it's not a museum that you only go into once in a while, and they come in there and they're encouraged by the conversation you have around a warm bowl of soup, that invests in that soul. And maybe that will motivate that person to go and then do the exact same thing or do something similar in their own neighborhood. And so hospitality is a way we can invest in other people. Serving the church with your time. Maybe that's in children's ministry. Maybe that's just in helping take care of the building. Maybe that's in any number of other ways. Giving extra resources that you have to missions or to seminaries. You know, I heard about a man who uh, had unbelieving children, but he himself was a faithful man. I believe it was at a church in Texas where I heard this story. I, mean, I heard about it. I haven't been to that church in Texas. But a very wealthy man who owned tons of oil fields and cattle and all the other things that make you wealthy in Texas, he had a lot of them. And he was getting older. And he said, you know what? I want to give enough to my unbelieving children that they know I loved them, that I wasn't trying to jip them at the end of my life. But I also know if I give them my money, they're going to waste it. And so I'm going to give my money to a seminary. And so then he just kind of started thinking through, which seminary do I think 50, 100 years from now will still be going strong, will still be making more and more disciples, so that even if it only creates 10 new good seminarians, which means that they're going to write good books and preach good sermons and disciple new believers and, and old believers alike, which one's going to do it the best? I'm going to give them my money so that the gospel keeps bearing fruit well after I am in a grave in Texas, like the guy we started the sermon with. 
Maybe you can support other ministries that help plant churches. You can invest in a relationship. And again, I heard a pastor as I was trying to get my mind around this passage. One pastor in, um, in Virginia said, it is an investment to spend a weekend away with your wife or with your husband. And you might think, okay, that's just an excuse. You can have a little vacation. You know what? If you have a healthy marriage, that means you're more likely to have a healthy home. And you know what healthy churches are made up of? Healthy homes. So by you having a healthy marriage, by you going away once in a while and having good conversations and extra time to pray and just hike and have a nice time together, that is an investment in the kingdom of God. So we need to think, you know, maybe think out of the box a little bit about ways that we can uh, invest in what will last forever. But what this passage is calling us to do is be faithful with what you have, even if you wish you had more. Be faithful with what you have, even if you wish you had more. So Jesus gives us three cautions in this passage. The first is to, don't use, to not use your money for short-sighted purposes. Secondly, we notice that this parable was, set, was told to his disciples there in verse 1. But from verse 14, we know that there are other people listening, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were lovers of money, and they heard all these things. And so our second section here, verses, excuse me, verses 14 through 18, is don't think your money represents God's favor. Don't think the money that you have represents that God favors you. Verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things. They were in the audience. And they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Verses 14 through 18 tell us, don't think your money represents God's favor. What Jesus tells these Pharisees, and I love Luke's little, like, in parentheses line there, they loved money, just so you know. In a chapter where we're talking about money, here's these guys who were characterized by their love of money. What they were doing, Jesus says, was justifying themselves before men. Look at us. Look at how much I have saved up for retirement. Look at these nice cars I'm driving. Look at the house I'm living in, not these nasty dumps. I live in this beautiful estate. Clearly, here's what you should conclude from that, the Pharisees were saying. God likes us a lot. That's what the Pharisees thought was true. Jesus is the same. Not so fast. Not to say you can't have a faithful Christian who has a lot. I know people like that. I am so thankful for people like that. There is no sin in having money. This passage is not saying that. It is sin to be a lover of money. Love the things money gives you more than loving God. But these Pharisees were concluding, based on my comparison with other people around me, God clearly likes me. God has been very kind to me, and so I'm right with God. And Jesus says, God knows your hearts. And what he says to them elsewhere is, you are hypocritical scoundrels. You are like serpents, he calls them, in a variety of passages in the Gospels. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination 
in the sight of God. In other words, what people like, what people value, doesn't matter at all to God. In fact, it's repulsive to Him. It's repugnant before God. What people value, what people think is important. I heard just yesterday, just last night, about a man who died a few years ago, a very wealthy man in the UK. Do you know who he left his estate to? Have you heard this story? He left it to his cat. So his cat wears diamond necklaces. And his cat travels in first class. And his cat has her own maids around the clock. That is a disgrace. That is a waste of money. I don't mind animals. We have one that lives in our house, for good or ill. Not a cat, but a, an animal. Don't even do that for my dog. That is a waste of money. And again, I know some of us love cats. That's fine. It's fine to love your cat. It's not fine to give your cat diamond jewelry. I'm just not sure where this idea comes from. What does that look like? It looks like my priorities are totally out of whack. There are so many other things that guy could have used his money for. What this passage is telling us here in verses 14 through 18 is don't think money represents God's favor. Just because you have a lot doesn't mean God is giving you that because of his favor toward you. So guard against and repent of the love of money. John Wesley, theologian hundreds of years ago, said to earn as much as you can, save as much as you can, and give away as much as you can. Have you ever thought about money in that way? I'm going to do everything I can to accumulate what this passage calls unrighteous wealth so that I can then give it away. I can throw gospel seeds in the air and watch where they plant and watch them get watered and over time, praise God, they're continuing to bear fruit. All I can say is I don't know who shared the gospel with my parents' parents in my my mom's case so my mom grew up in a christian home my dad grew up in an unsaved congregation or unsaved family in california they both came to faith in christ but who was it that i know my mom heard the gospel from her parents over and over again in the context of a christian home but who planted the gospel seeds in her parents minds no idea i hope to learn that in heaven All I'm saying is, we're going to keep throwing gospel seeds in the ground until the Lord returns, because that is the most faithful way to use the resources He has given us. And so we're going to earn as much as we can, save as much as we can, and give away as much as we can. Let me just make a quick comment on verses 17 and 18. Basically, this again, this is another one of those sections where it's kind of confusing. I want to wrap this up um, and, and not dwell too much on this section here. What Jesus is doing is saying, you guys think, the the Pharisees were thinking, Jesus has come and is undoing the law. What would make them conclude that? The the healings he performed on the Sabbath day, for instance. Maybe they were looking at him and saying, yeah, we don't like this guy. He keeps breaking the law. What he's saying here in verses 17 and 18 is, I'm fulfilling the law. And in fact, I'm upholding the law more strictly than you strict Pharisees are doing. That's what he's saying in verse 18. The Pharisees were allowing divorce for anything. Like your wife burned the chicken? Yeah, you're done with her. Find a better one. That's the mentality that the Pharisees had that everybody had at this stage in history. And the Pharisees were promoting that, and Jesus says, not so fast. My view of divorce and remarriage and so forth is even stricter than yours, so don't get off on this idea that 
I have come to undo the Old Testament, the law and the prophets that he calls it here in verse 16. I've actually come to fill it full. I've actually come to fulfill the law. And so verse 18 is just this example that he could have used any other example. But here's one example of how not only have I not voided the law, I've actually given it even more significance. So that's what this section's doing. If that verse about, about divorce uh, raises a question, you're welcome to ask Clayton and I about that any time. But this sermon is about money, not divorce, because that's what this whole passage about, is about. This, this verse is just an example of how Jesus is himself fulfilling the law. So Jesus gives us three cautions in this passage about money. The first is, don't use your money for short-sighted purposes. The second is, don't think money represents God's favor. And the third is, don't let money cloud your view of what matters. Don't let money cloud your view of what matters, what's actually going to last, what's important. What truly matters is whether you listen to what God has said through His Word. That's the point of this next parable here. Whether you had riches in this life or not, what matters is, did you hear the Word of God while you had the opportunity? So this passage tells us about a man. Let me read verses 19 through 31 here. Another rich man is described here, a man who's living like a king. I'll read it quickly. So listen quickly, and then I'll talk about it quickly. There is a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. I need some water just for a second, coincidentally, at that verse. I did not plan that. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Don't let money cloud your view of what matters. This rich man had it all. He had a wonderful life until he died. And then he went to hell, and he was in agony and torment. And all I want to say is, this passage makes you sick to your stomach when you think about people who are lost and dying and going to hell. And may it motivate us to tell people the good news of Christ, that there is a remedy to our sin. There is someone who bore the wrath of God for us. John Piper says, The most loving man that ever walked the earth gave the strongest and fullest description of hell. Jesus did not shy away from the reality that there is an eternal conscious torment for those who would reject God and live for their their own selves, live their own way. Back in Luke 1, I, I wrote this verse down on my notes here. Luke one fifty three says, He has filled the hungry with good things. This is part of Mary's uh, praise of God after she learned that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. He has filled the hungry 
this poor man, with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. This passage is living color of what that passage is talking about. So this story about this rich man reminds us that there is something worse than death. All right, that guy in Texas who wanted to be buried near his parents, that's a fine request. My only question is, did that guy consider there's something worse than death? There's something worse than being poor in this life. A pastor in Charlotte named Kevin DeYoung writes, there is something worse than death and only the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaimed by Christians and protected by the church, can set us free from what we truly must fear. The doctrine of hell reminds us that the greatest need of every person will not be met by the United Nations or Habitat for Humanity or the United Way. It is only through Christian witness, through proclamation of Christ crucified, that the worst thing in all the world will not fall on all those in the world. So how should we think about this passage? This horrifying reality, this doctrine of hell here described, where this rich man who had it all, then is buried, he gets his burial, but he goes to hell. This poor man who had dogs licking him, he was so unable to help himself, and it doesn't say he was buried, probably because he couldn't afford it and because no one cared because he was just another beggar out in the streets. But he goes to heaven. Clearly, let's just interject this here, not on the basis of his poverty. Poverty has never saved anyone. Just like having money has never sent anyone to hell. Though Jesus does say it's harder for a rich man to see his need for the gospel, right? But just because you're poor doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven. Clearly, what Jesus is assuming from other passages is that this man had put his hope in Christ. Maybe he had heard Jesus preach. So what should you do when you hear this passage, when you are reminded of the horrors of hell and of the glory of heaven? You should tell people that there is a Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. His name is Jesus. You should tell people this is the good news. You should urge people to repent and believe the gospel. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to ask you, do you believe in hell? Like when you read this, do you respond to this with like a, like that, that just doesn't sit with me? It doesn't jive with my perspective on what life is about and how long life lasts, things like that. Many people do believe in hell, but they have kind of weird views about it. For one, that it's like this eternal party which strangely is what they view about heaven as well. But then there are other people who actually believe what the Bible says about the reality of hell, but they're not going to go there. Like The only people who go there are the really bad people. And we won't waste our time on who that would be, but the really bad people will go to hell, but that's it. And I would just say, what the Bible says about hell is that we all deserve it. It is where the wrath of God is poured out unendingly. And everyone who has refused to repent of their rebellion against God. Did you know that you are a rebel before God? And if you have not turned from that and confessed that to God, this is what your eternal future looks like. Is agony, is torment, is fire, is thirst. That sounds awful. It is awful. And so, our response to this then is to invite our friends to church, is to have dinner with loved ones who are not believers. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon in the 1700s called, The Torments of Hell Are Exceeding Great, based on verse 24. 
about send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He does not want this. He wants one drop because of the agony of hell. So I would just tell you, repent while there is time. You are, let's just cut right to the chase, you are the five brothers that this passage talks about. In other words, you still have time. You're alive. You're hearing the Word of God preached to you. You have the Law and the Prophets, which is the Old Testament, and you have more than that. They thought, somebody rising from the dead, then we'll believe. At that point when Jesus said this, he hadn't risen from the dead. Maybe even the other Lazarus the Bible talks about hadn't risen from the dead yet. But when Jesus did raise Lazarus in John 11, how did people respond? They wanted to kill Jesus. That's how people respond to someone rising from the dead. And so the question to me, to, for you today is simply, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If not, what is your explanation of how Jesus was not in the tomb three days after he was placed in it? This is the question that we need to answer for ourselves and ask our loved ones as well. So repent while there is time. The only question is whether you will believe that someone truly has risen from the dead and he did so for your justification so that you can be right with God. I don't know anything about that man in Texas and whether he had a relationship with the Lord. Again, I, I always hope that people do. I always hope that even if they have lived a terrible life, that on the last day they'll say, God, forgive me. In Christ, I do not deserve your mercy, but I throw myself on your mercy. That's a wonderful prayer to pray. I pray that people pray that on their dying beds. So I don't know if that man did that or not. But he did plan his grave. The question is whether you have planned beyond your grave. I do know another man who died yesterday. A week ago, no one in his life thought anything was wrong. On Wednesday, he went to the doctor, was diagnosed with leukemia, and he died of it yesterday. He's my age. He has a wife and three young boys, uh, three young children. They live in South Carolina. It's a terrible story. My, when my sister texted me, I can pull my phone out and tell you the exact words, but it was basically, Mike Durso died today. My response was, that is utterly or uh, absolutely shocking. That was my response. Because I had just heard on Thursday that he had been diagnosed the night before, and now he's dead. But I do know, whether he ever had time to plan his own funeral or to pick out where he was going to be buried, I do know he planned for the future. I do know he looked beyond the grave, and his hope was in Christ. He was a wonderful elder of his church in South Carolina. Not that being an elder saves you. I'm just saying he, had, he bore the fruits of repentance throughout his life. He was a good friend to many people in his life. Who cares if you've picked out where your burial plot is? Who cares if you're, ba- if you're buried next to your parents? Life is short. Eternity is forever. So while you have time, repent and believe the gospel. And let's go and tell people that Christ is a glorious Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It is sobering. It jars us. It reminds us, again, of how short our lives are and how much of our lives matters so very little. But we want to do what lasts forever. We want our money to last forever. So give us grace to invest in what will last forever. 
to cause gospel seeds then to be sown and watered and to bear fruit by your Spirit's work. We pray that we would be people who love what you say, even the hard words. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.